I'll be reading from Psalm 24, 1 and Mark 14, 3 through 9. <clears throat> States, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. And Mark says, Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive, expensive perfume made from essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. But Jesus replied, Leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth. Wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, everything <laughs> that has been sung today, said today, Hannah, thank you, really points to this whole theme, and I'm so grateful. Wasn't that a beautiful song that Anna sang? Some of you might remember Anna. She was here with about an hour and a half's notice when our musician who was filling in for uh, Ethan was not here, and she had about, what, an hour to prepare and led worship in the second service and did a dynamite job. And uh, she is going to be interning, actually, for this whole semester uh, with uh, Keith. And you happen to be a pre scholar, aren't you? I hear that's a great group. Uh, <laughs> but everything that's been said and sung today is so beautifully woven into where we're going this morning. Uh, again, just to look at our logo one more time, because this is the final sermon in this series, dealing with our four major initiatives uh, for this year, and I know that you have a bulletin insert, and we're going to get to that uh, toward the close of things. But again, it's all his. What is the S for? Does anybody remember? It's all his story. The T is it's all his time. A is all his assets. And this morning, finally, and most dramatically, it's his resources. Oh, we're going to talk about money. Yay! I'm already getting the response I got. I think it was back in 2002 uh, when I was interim pastor up at First Baptist Church of Knoxville, Tennessee, and uh, the guy who's in charge of the ticket office for UT games, football games, uh, went to that church. And so he got Deanna and me and Hannah and Nick tickets to the Alabama-Tennessee game up there in Nayland Stadium. I think it was 2002 and Brody Croyle was the Alabama quarterback. It was either his freshman year or sophomore year. Alabama was not favored, but Brody ate them alive. And we were four crimson jackets in a sea of orange and screaming our heads off and hoping not to get hurt. And, uh, but it was just great. I enjoyed it so much. I know Don Sullivan must have loved it. Uh, <laughs> But it was just so much fun. And we left there. We were still cheering. We were all fired up. I remember we got back to the hotel and I thought, oh my gosh, I got to preach to these people tomorrow. And I thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to do when I get up there? And they're all so glum and everything. How can I, you know, break through the ice and loosen everybody up? So I kept thinking about that, really worried about, oh, what's, what's going to happen? Because I'm going to have this real sensitive kind of feel when I first get up there to preach. And I thought, wait a minute, Sanford had played that same day and had defeated, how many of y'all have ever heard of a Robert Morris College? (laughs) 
You have? Okay, I had not heard of it up until then. But we played uh, Robert Morris College, and by cracky, we came through and beat Robert Morris College. So I thought I'd get up there and say, to break the ice, well, my team won yesterday. Sanford beat Robert Morris. (laughs) You know, loosen everybody up, right? So there was this... There was this wonderful uh, choral anthem. It's very kind of high church in this gorgeous, ornate uh, uh, sanctuary. Anybody been to the sanctuary there, First Baptist Knoxville? Just gorgeous. And they do this wonderful high church hymn, and there's this pause, and I step up, and I say, well, my team won yesterday, and you heard some moans already. And I, so I thought, well, let's give it a pregnant pause. And I said, Samford defeated Robert Morris. <laughs> Robert. Sanford, <laughs> crickets, you know, just, it, it was bad. And so I'm already seeing some of your looks like, oh, he's going to talk about money. It's one of those stewardship sermons, just great. Uh, and it can be a sensitive issue talking about money, but, but think about this. Think about how often it appears in Scripture, just the New Testament alone. In the New Testament alone, there are 500 verses having to do specifically with faith and prayer. You know how many there are about money? 2,000. Go to the teachings of Jesus. Jesus talks more about money than he talks about heaven and hell. In fact, he talks twice as much about money and possessions than he does heaven and hell combined. Look at his parables. 16 of the 38 parables that he tells have to do specifically with money and possessions and how we view it and how we are to use it and to remind ourselves that it's all His. So why is it so important? I mean, you look at the percentage there, you would think we should talk about money a whole lot more. Why is it so important? Because money has the capacity, as you know, has the great potential to become a substitute God for you and me. We wind up ascribing things to money that are only meant to God, meant for God in our relationship with God. Somebody once said, be careful what you pursue. If you're going to pursue it, make sure it's good enough to be your God. (laughs) It's a good point. Make sure it can be there in your times of crisis and truly pull you through. Make sure that it can provide that surpassing peace that really does surpass understanding. Make sure it's there when it's time for you to die. Make sure it's there for you to come back to life. But all too often, we give our hearts to other things. Now, uh, probably the the text that's used more often, the scripture passage that's used more often when people preach on stewardship is the parable of the, starts with a T, in what they do with the, the three guys do with the parable of the talents, Right? Matthew 25, 14 through 30. And folks, mainly focus on what each of those three persons, each of those three servants do with the money. And some of them use it better than others. But I want to tell you, I think the most important word, which appears twice in the very first verse, it's in the very first verse. And I think we need to keep that in mind. And let me just read it. And you tell me what you think the important word is here, especially in lieu of where we're going this year. Jesus said, again, the kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. What do you think is the real important word there? His. It's his. He owns it all. He owns it all. He's entrusting it to the servants, but it's all his. We should never dare to assume that anything we have is his. 
It's on loan. But we are called to acknowledge again that it's all his. And what we do with it is what he's watching. And that's what he's looking at us about. Which is why we need to have a healthy ownership theology, let's call it. That's what Kyle Eidelman calls it. In fact, he practices a spiritual discipline every day (laughs) to help him remember ownership theology, to keep acknowledging, you know, everything I have is his. And he says, I, I, well, and just to paraphrase him, I get up in the morning out of God's bed, I go into the, God's bathroom, I step into God's shower, I take a shower, I go into God's kitchen, uh, I eat God's cereal, which is Honey Nut Cheerios, and uh, I brush my teeth with God's toothbrush, I get into God's car, I go to work, I come back to God's house in the evening, I turn on... God's TV, I watch God's basketball team, the University of Louisville. Keith, I'm sorry, I see that UK sweater, I just had to get that dig in, I'm sorry. (laughs) And he's got it, who's got that, well anyway, Doug, where is he? Okay, and then eventually I'll go back to God's bed and fall asleep again. And again, he says that's a great way to acknowledge each and every day as a spiritual discipline that it's all his and it gives you perspective. It reminds you to really be grateful for what you have and not be ungrateful for what you don't have. Speaking of gratitude, do you want to see great gratitude? Do you want to see raw gratitude? You go to the passage that KT read just a moment ago. I just think it's a wonderful story about the woman in this text. Now, to give you a little bit of background, It's the festival of Passover and unleavened bread. It's a big to-do in Jerusalem, and everybody has come in, especially a lot of the affluent, uh, intelligent, influential people. And Jesus is at the home of a guy named Simon the leper. We don't know much about him, but if you look at all the Gospels in harmony, you discern this is a group of honchos. It's highfalutin people. It's people in tall cotton. It's the intellects of the area. It's the elite people. It's the influential people. It's the well-to-do people. And they're all standing around, reclining around, uh, being elite with each other and rejoicing in how elite they are as they're all here to celebrate this festival. And then this woman walks in. One of those women. One of those women of ill repute. And um, things turn sour and glum. And, and, and the thing was, though, she had something she wanted to give to someone. And I love the way, the best way I've heard this moment in a sermon was by a West Virginia preacher, an African-American preacher, 350-pound guy, and I loved it. And it was called, the sermon title was, Excuse Me. And he said, the woman walked into that room with all those people. And they started to murmur because there was a rumor on her. And they knew she was a sinner. They knew she was unworthy. And she knew they were murmuring about her. But she didn't even acknowledge the murmurs because she had a mission. She had a purpose. She had something she wanted to do, something to take to someone. In fact, do you know what? She didn't come here to see them anyway. Excuse me. Let's love that. She went on and she looked at them and said, I know you gentlemen think you know who I am and I'm a woman of ill repute and I'm a sinner. And I've heard all the rumors about me that y'all have been spreading. And you just think I am so unworthy. But, but I didn't come here to see you anyway. Excuse me. 
And I see you're a scribe, and yeah, you're a Pharisee, and you're a wealthy businessman, and you're a politician. You're a member of the Sanhedrin for Pete's sake. Boy, I'm walking around in tall cotton right now. But if you'll, if you'll just, just pardon me, I just want to wade through this tall cotton to find this one man named Jesus. Excuse me. Finally, she says, you know, I know that you're the high and holy people. You're the ones who go to the synagogue every Sabbath. And you go and offer those sacrifices at the temple all the time. And you pray those beautiful, beautiful melodic prayers. And you do them out loud for so many people to hear. And I know you follow all 613 of those those, uh, laws in the Hebrew scriptures. You're just so high and so holy. But you know what? I'm here to see the one who is totally, completely, purely holy. So excuse me. (laughs) And she goes and finds him. And she breaks that jar for him, anoints Jesus with that ointment. Oh, dripping down. She lavishes this gift upon him because of the grace that's been lavished upon her, just like Anne said in her prayer. Lavishes it upon him. And then the murmuring gets even louder. What a waste! How extravagant. That could have been used in so many other ways. What a waste. And Jesus says, that's exactly why I praise her. He goes on to say, basically, centuries from now, people will talk about what she just did for me. And we do. When was the last time that you gave lavishly to him. And I'm talking about what you have. I'm talking about possessions. Yeah, I'm talking about including your bank account, your wallet. We all can give different amounts and we understand that. But when was the last time you gave lavishly and joyfully? Because way too often we let our self-consumed materialism distract us. (laughs) Would it be possible for you to look at all those distractions and say, excuse me, and give to him. Could you, could you overcome your fears of, of not having enough when we have plenty, don't we? And can we get past those fears and say, excuse me? Could we climb out of our gutters of, of, of cozy materialism and say, excuse me, I have something to give to him? You know, think about our shallow toys and think about how we might give a little less to that and a little more to him. A little more to him. Excuse me, I'm here to give back. I will never forget about a dozen years ago reading a book by Ron Sider. Ron is the founder of Evangelicals for Social Action. He wrote a fascinating book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, and he did a whole lot of research on churches and giving And he had major people in Washington, D.C. do all this research for him. And this is what they found. I just want to read the quote. Listen to this. If American Christians simply gave a tithe, just American Christians, not Christians worldwide. If American Christians simply gave a tithe, there would be enough private Christian dollars to provide basic health care and education to all, all the poor of the earth. And we would still have an extra 60 to 70 billion left over for evangelism across the globe. Now, that's something. Now, I don't know what you can give. Can we all tithe? I don't know. I'm not worried about that. Can you give sacrificially with joy and lavishly? And will you commit to doing that? 
this year. There are so many models in the world of people who do that in the most unlikely of places. People across the globe who are not American who give so joyfully when they have very, very, very little to give. It reminded me of something I read by Ann Voskamp. Anybody read anything by Ann Voskamp? She's a wonderful writer, blogger. I've asked Diane Wad uh, to come up and, and read a piece that she wrote. When she went to Uganda, and uh, she had never seen, she had never met this child, this little girl whom she sponsored through Compassion International. And so she went to Uganda to meet this little girl, and she was so excited, and she remained there for a service of worship And it came the time for the offertory as they worshiped there in this cinder block shelter. And this is what she had to say. Dear North American Church, after a Sunday morning in Africa, you don't look the same to me. You look hungry, hungrier than anything I've seen in Africa. Because after I watched that Ugandan woman that woman with no shoes and no husband and seven kids walk up to the front of the church and put this bag of beans into the basket as her love offering to God. My heart ached this raw conviction, and I could feel it with you, North American Church, what you really wanted. You're hungry to love like this. You're hungry for the uncomfortable. You're hungry to sacrifice your gourmet coffees, your Netflix subscription, your dinners out for something more. You're hungry for more than vanilla services and sweetened programs and watered-down lives. You're famished for more, for hard and holy things, for some real meat for your starved soul, some real dirt under your fingernails, some real sacrifice in your veins some real Jesus in your blood and in your hands and in your feet. When I sat under a tree in Africa for True Love Baptist Church Sunday school class, I sat in the class with our sponsored child, Anna, a class that had no million-dollar roof, no walls, no chalkboard or crayons, papers, flash, glitz, or gloss, just one tree, and one grinning preacher with a falling-apart Bible. I could hear your restlessness, North American Church. When that preacher stood under the tree on a Sunday morning and told the kids, dressed up in not a whole lot more than tattered rags, God lets us all give just like the widow's offering. He was smiling like he had swallowed the infamous original canary. He couldn't stop laughing giddily. You don't have to wait to have more. You don't have to wait to have much. You don't have to wait at all. And I'm looking into the eyes of all these African children, all these hungry dancing eyes, and the preachers literally dancing under the tree. You all get to give. It's not just the rich who get to give. It's all those who give who get to be rich. You don't wait until you have more before you give to God. You give now so you can become more in God. 
The children are all smiling and singing, and there's all this light coming like dampled deliverance through the leaves. Bring your only mango to Jesus. The preacher's waving his hands in extravagant joy. Bring your one handful of beans. Bring your one heart overflowing with song. It's not having much that makes you rich. It's the giving much that makes you rich. Give, and you are the rich. And I'm sitting under a tree in Africa with the richest in the world. And it's not Bill Gates, and it's not Warren Buffett, and it's not Mark Zuckerberg, and it's not the family with two cars, a flat screen television, and a week at Disney. It's a bunch of kids in Africa in ripped shirts and torn shoes who have no knives or forks and sleep on floors. It's only the people who give sacrificially who get to live richly. And I bow my sorry head. Be concerned for the poor. But be no less concerned for us rich who claim not to be so rich so we can excuse ourselves from giving. Be concerned for the poor. But no less concerned for us who have done just enough to assuage our conscience Just enough to pat ourselves on the back, but not enough that we ever felt sacrifice. Be concerned for the poor, but be no less concerned for us who aren't. Because someday, we will face Christ. I'm standing in Africa, and you can hear the whole North American church rising up and crying out, What if caring for the poor was more than just caring about easing our conscience. What if caring for the poor meant feeling sacrifice for the poor? What if we weren't really feeling care for the poor until we were really feeling sacrifice for them? North American Church, Brookwood Baptist Church, it is time. We are all done with no risk, no sacrifice, no point lives. It is time. We are all done with the drugs of comfortable and dare to live the dream of uncomfortable. It is time. We're all hungry for uncomfortable because we're hungry for God and he is out of our comfort zones. This is what faith is. So how willing are we to bring about in our own lives a little bit of discomfort because when we do that, that is the grace of surrendering to him. Now I want you to take this bulletin insert for just a second. And on a very practical level, uh, in the spirit of what we have going on this year with these four emphases, what we're going to do, and my deepest prayer, I'm going to confess here, my deepest prayer is that this doesn't amount to what a lot of us did in old school days when we had the little offertory envelope and it said on the front, the little checklist, Bible brought, Bible verse memorized, offering brought, all that. Some of you remember that. At the end of each quarter of this year, so you know, the, the, the last two Sundays in March, along with those Wednesdays to make sure everybody's filled it out, we're going to have you fill this out anonymously and honestly. <laughs> because what we want to try to do as we do every year is gauge, are we taking a little more time? 
Are we taking a little more effort to tell his story? Are we using our assets that we have? And yes, are we offering our resources to him more than we have in the last quarter? And we're going to gauge it. And we're going to see how we do. And you're going to get reports from me. And I will praise us and give praise to God for when we do well with some of these and and, and increase it. And I'll let you know (laughs) if there are any areas where we need to shore it up. Shore it up for his sake because it's all his anyway. So, in fact, these all have a, a call statement. Like the first one, we are called to find ourselves in his story and to share those discoveries with others, sharing the gospel with others, very basically. And the action is in the last month. Now, I'm going to give you, you know, we're going to give you an even wider window. We're probably going to say in the last quarter, I have shared what's God, what God is doing in my life with, and there you go. And you've got all four of our initiatives represented on this. So be prepared toward the close of each of our quarters this year to fill this out, please be honest with it, and please be anonymous with it. And we will take these up, and we want to gauge and see if we're doing a little bit better. I know better than anybody that you cannot fully quantify spirituality and spiritual growth based on numbers, but I think the numbers can be an indicator. And, and, I, and I pray that you would help us as we take these initiatives and give back to the one who owns it all anyway. It is a grace for us to surrender what we can, sacrifice what we can, and simply to be a part of his story. Let's close with prayer. Lord, it's all yours. Forgive us when our pride and our naivete and really our sinful hearts even begin to presume and imagine that it's ours. Forgive us, O God, when we are distracted by things of this world by shallow toys that really get in our way of seeing you and of serving you, we ask your forgiveness. Be with us as we commit ourselves all the more to these initiatives, O God. Please help us and give us the strength to be more like your sacrificial son, Jesus. I'd like for you in this moment to have a moment of silent meditation, and I want you to consider these initiatives, whether telling his story or, or using more of your time for him or using more of your spiritual gifts or using and offering more of your resources. And I just want you to, to commit yourself all the more to, to at least focusing on one of those, let's say for the very first quarter, and committing yourself to giving more in that area, maybe in one area, maybe two, maybe all four. But I want to give you just a time of silent meditation to commit yourselves all the more to be the kind of sacrificial disciple he wants us all to be. Will you do that? Lord, help us not to take this lightly. Help us not to play church. Help us not to condescend and acquiesce ourselves into just being church culture, but help us to be your disciples willing to go anywhere in the earth, to give whatever we might have, to take whatever time we need to take to share your good news with others. Motivate us during the course of this year to live out these initiatives that you have planted in our hearts. 
And as we come to this time of commitment, O oh God, as we stand and sing in just a moment, we pray that as we sing these words that we would take them to heart and take to heart all that we have heard and prayed and sung during this hour. We pray these things in your name. Amen.